the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program as we close out yet another week. September is going by really, really quickly. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about church, whatever's on your heart. All we need you to do is to provide the phone call. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And once again, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected to our studio producer. Hey, we've got a lot going on this weekend. I hope you do as well, going to church, and an opportunity to serve the Lord in these last days. Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, praise the Lord, we're going to heaven. We're in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, and we're going to get to heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 are really just one long chapter, and they've separated them into two. It's probably going to take me three weeks to get through them all, but to, to see heaven from, I mean, all we can do is imagine what it's like, but there's a lot of clues in these two chapters about the glory and the magnificence of heaven. So that's where we're going tonight here at Calvary Chapel. I am going to be finishing 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I have the unfortunate duty to teach the part this week where Paul says I, women must remain silent in the churches, and uh, I'll try to explain that as well. Wherever you're going to church, find somebody to be sure they know how much God loves them. Church is a place to go minister. You will be ministered to, but remember, the place is a church to use your gifts for the glory of God. Let's get to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. Uh, this one's from Scott from our email inbox. Is First Samuel uh, chapter 16 and 17 in chronological order? I ask because David is brought into Saul's service Asked for by name in chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. However, Saul asked who David is in chapter 17, uh, 56 and 58, where David introduces himself to Saul. Uh, Scott, this is a question, frankly, I get quite uh, fairly frequently uh, because people think, how could this not happen? It's like John the Baptist. Tell us if he's the one. He knew who Jesus was. Well, in this particular case, um, we need to look more closely at the question. In verse 56, let me read 55 and 56. And this is chapter 17. 
As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. Now, because I've been asked how Saul could not have known who David was, I mean, he'd played the liar for him when he was upset. He'd thrown javelins at him. He'd chased him around uh, in the, uh, the, 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 in the caves for a bunch of years. David had actually been in his palace. But we need to look more closely at the question. Saul asked whose son David was. Now, why would he ask that? We need to remember there was a great fortune awaiting the father of the man who killed the giant. Sort of like hitting the jackpot. And Saul wanted whose son he was. Um, two significant things uh, when, when Saul asked David, whose son are you? Uh, first, Davis wouldn't let go of his trophy, trophy Goliath's head. Uh, the trophy was important. Uh, wasn't important for David, but it was certainly important for God. And um, that uh, bloody, stinky head of Goliath was just a picture, Scott, of, of God's victory over the enemies of Israel. But there's something else here, and I think it applies to Christians today. Uh, everyone could see that David was God's man. That's what God wanted to do. He was now putting David on display. So before this, he was simply a, a shepherd, uh, invisible, unknown. Um, but now he's David, the man of God. No longer the obscure little boy despised by his brothers, uh, he's a, a man of renown. Now, you want to say, how does this apply to people today? Um, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the platform God has given you. With the power of God's Spirit, you can be used for God's glory in marvelous ways. And all we need to do is be aware of that. So, Scott, that was the question. And it was, again, it is in chronological order. Um, that wasn't the uh, uh, the problem here. Thank you very, very much. Here is another question. This one is from Michelle from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron and Mama Paula. I pray all is well. I have a question slash concern I've been praying about and no answer from the Lord, so I'm confused. Uh, I told my husband I just don't want to disappoint my father on the decision, so I thought I would reach out to you for some wisdom. I hope you don't mind. I have a family member uh, who just got saved this March. As soon as she got saved, she started attending a Bible study, invited everyone, men and women. My husband spoke to her and explained biblical scripture about leading men. She didn't take it quite well. Uh, well, now she has another Bible study going, and she's inviting just women. Well, at least she seems to take, have taken your counsel. My concern is she just got saved in March. I'm afraid it's too soon for her to be holding this Bible study. Every time I join, I have to be prepared. Uh, she either says something misleading or doesn't know what to say. Uh, I told my husband my concern. Again, I'm afraid to stop going and one, let the Lord down. Uh, two, um, know that these women are being misled and I'm not doing anything about it. Uh, a couple of things, Michelle. Uh, you're not responsible for um, other people and their discernment. Um, I'm glad you spoke up about her leading a Bible study with men in it. I, I'm I'm not even so sure that in a home Bible study situation uh, that it's inappropriate. You know, Paul gives the rules uh, to uh, to people in church. I do not permit a woman to teach a man or have authority over a man in church. And I don't think at home. I don't think quite that the same rules apply. Uh, I do think that this this woman apparently she's uh, excited about her faith in the Lord. She's she's uh, she's wanting to be used by God. All of those are good things, and I certainly wouldn't want you to dampen her enthusiasm. However, I just think what what you probably ought to do is encourage her to be involved in a in a solid Bible teaching church. It's really early for people to start teaching Bible studies when they don't really know anything. James says not many of you should seek to be teachers. You should probably show her that scripture. Because we stand a stricter judgment. In this case, because she doesn't know what she needs to know to be a teacher, we don't know if she's even been given the gift of teaching yet. It's probably something that she ought to be very, very careful about. And it's something that ought to be... Um, considered carefully and wisely, prayerfully. 
Uh, and, and really, I would tell her, this is between you and the Lord. Now, whether you keep going or not is not the issue. Um, I don't think it's healthy to go, Michelle, looking for her to make mistakes. Um, God can take care of his people. Uh, he hasn't appointed you to do that. And so what I would um, counsel you to do is is just decide whether or not you want to go. Don't go because it's an obligation. Don't go because you want to make sure that, that nobody's misled. Just go. Let the Lord uh, speak to your heart and pray for her. Pray for her. She listened to you once. Maybe she'll listen again. She needs to be careful about her responsibility, opening a Bible and teaching. I'm, I, I would actually be thrilled. Let me tell you a very quick story. Um, uh, a, 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 a man I know, I don't know him well, but back in the Jesus Movement days, uh, in the in the early 70s, um, he got saved one night. Uh, next day, he, with his new Bible, uh, he started teaching people. Now, all he was doing was open the Bible and reading it and say, look at this, look at this, look at this. And the Lord really, really blessed him. Uh, I mean, the Spirit of God was moving. It was a little bit of a different situation then. Um, and, and by the time this guy went to a church of another friend of mine, um, he, he, he was told by that pastor there, well, you know, if you're already teaching a Bible study, um, you, you might think about this and think about this. He says, well, I'm already doing that. And he says, how many Bible studies are you teaching? He says, I'm teaching three. And people were coming. That, that same guy, Michelle, has been a pastor for about 35 years. And um, God has used him to do wonderful things. He didn't know he didn't know stuff. And I think sometimes, especially in a revival such as was going on in the Jesus movement days, the Jesus people movement, um, God will surprise you. So uh, she needs to know she, she can't be a pastor, she can't be a teacher. But if she hasn't been saved very long, she needs to sit under somebody's um, leadership and really and truly learn the Bible. Hope that helps, Michelle. Thank you for your interest and for your concern. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Uh, Greg says, does First John 3, 6 mean that we won't sin if we mature in our faith. Uh, let me read 1 John 3, 6, Greg, and then I'll answer the question. John writes, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either sinned him or known him. Now, Greg, this is really important. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. Now, the idea here, and remember 1 John, the entire context of 1 John is fellowship with God. We pray that, that, that you would have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with Jesus, is what he's saying. And so this is about fellowship. And here's what he's saying. If you live in Christ, if he's the purpose of your life, you won't go on deliberately sinning. That's the sense here. It's a very strong, active tense. Uh, and then he explains it even further by saying, if you see someone who is continuing to sin, this is willful, deliberate sin, that person has neither seen God or known God. And we get that a lot, don't we? We get people who say, well, I'm saved. I, I got I'm born again. I got baptized, whatever their response is. But, but they keep on sinning. And I've said this many times on this show and even more times at church, that people who continue to sin willfully, deliberately, they've not really met Jesus. Meeting Jesus changes you. So that's what John is saying. Uh, you want to know if somebody's saved? Well, look at their life. If they're continuing to sin, then they haven't met him. But the, the man or the woman who, who met Jesus and turns from sin, well, we can be pretty sure they're saved and their fellowship is with us and our fellowship is with Christ. So it's really important to understand, and I think this is one of the reasons you've got to have a, a Bible dictionary or a concordance. You really need to, to, to look at the original language. So it doesn't mean that we won't sin. Um, you know, I've seen people use this to to justify their belief in uh, sinless perfection. Oh, we can get there. John says so. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's simply talking about a lifestyle of sinning. And if you have a lifestyle of sinning, John says, not only do you not know him, but um, you haven't seen him, you haven't met 
the Jesus of the Bible. Greg, thank you for the question. Here is a question from Jeanette. What is your favorite Bible verse, Pastor Ron? One that gives you strength every day. Um, Jeanette, I don't, I don't really have favorites. I mean, I've got some that that mean a lot to me, but I'm not one of those guys that has, you know, the I call them refrigerator magnet verses. Um, um, the thing I love most about the Bible is that it's living, and it's really never about just one verse. Um, it meets you where you are. I've had verses that changed my life. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, uh, when I was a new believer and I was so struggling with guilt and condemnation, just how could you ever love me, God? I've done so many horrible things. And Romans 3, 24 told me that I was justified freely and that justification, just as if I'd never sinned, came at the cross uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. So, so, in that moment, I was struggling. God's living and active word met me. Um, I like the verses that everybody else likes, but what I like even more is knowing that when I open my Bible, Jesus is going to speak to me. Uh, so, so I don't, I, I don't get my, I, and I don't want this to be misunderstood, Jeanette. I don't get my strength every day from a Bible verse. I get my strength every day from Jesus, who often will speak to me in my reading. And so I'm not one of those guys who says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and it gets me motivated. What gets me motivated is every day getting up, being with Jesus, knowing that he's got a plan for me, knowing that he wants to speak to my heart and that the, the Bible is the way he's going to speak to me most often, um, uh, by far most often. And so um, um, I, I hope that makes sense to you. It's just not about a verse for me. Um, I just like being with Jesus. I love hearing his voice. Um, there are times he speaks. My, my personal reading, Jeanette, uh, is, is currently in Deuteronomy. And uh, um, yesterday, especially in chapter 8, today in chapter 9, the Lord spoke to my heart. So today, my favorite Bible verses it came from Deuteronomy chapter 9. So I hope that makes sense. I know you're looking for a verse that I've held on to. I can tell you there are a couple of um, Bible stories and verses I've held to literally every day in my 30-plus years of walking with Jesus now. Um, I will not let go until you bless me from Genesis chapter 32. Uh, I literally say that every day. I send my hand to the Lord uh, and and I just say, look, I take your hand in faith. I offer my hand in faith. I take your hand in faith. And I will not let go until you bless me. And um, so so every day, that, that's been an active, vibrant part of my walk with Jesus. So that's probably the one I use the most. But um, it, it's it's just Jesus. Jesus is the, the source of strength. Thank you, Jeanette. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Um, I am fighting an addiction to pornography. Why won't God help me? Even when I resist, I'm left exhausted. Um, anonymous, you're left exhausted because fighting is exhausting. I don't know if you've ever boxed or been in a knockdown, dragout fight. I mean, you get such a rush of adrenaline. And then when it's gone, that burst of energy is gone. I mean, you're left with nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing in terms of strength or, or, or power. Um, fighting is exhausting. It's supposed to be. And you are in a fight for your life, your, your fruitful life as it relates to Jesus. And Anonymous, I'm going to suggest to you that God is the only source of help. You say, why won't God help me? What do you expect him to do? Do you expect him to turn off the computer when you turn it on? You look at your phone, he slaps it out of your hand. Is that what you expect? How about you just say, Jesus, I want to be with you. And if I look at this filth, I can't be with you. Now, I understand the power of pornography. Men are attracted to sex especially visually stimulating sex. So it's just something. It's in our world. People have access to it now as never before in our world. And so we've got to make a decision. Do we love Jesus more? Do we love our flesh more? Are we going to do something just so that we can be with Jesus? Or are we going to do something that we want to do more than we want to be with Jesus? Thus, we have to send Jesus away. 
So here's the thing. When you start thinking about porn, Paul says to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. If you'll do that, God will replace the, those, those thoughts that come from the enemy and from this world and from your flesh. He'll replace them with thoughts above. Your word I've hidden in my heart, David wrote, so that I will not sin against you. You've got a decision to make, Anonymous. Are you going to please Jesus? Is he going to be the purpose of your life? Or are you more interested in pleasing self? Now, I'm also going to take issue with your use of the word addiction. We live in a culture that doesn't want to accept responsibility for the choices we make. You're not addicted to porn. You're addicted to sin. We all are. But Jesus has broken the power of sin. You once were slaves to sin. Now you're slave to righteousness as a believer. And I have to ask you, do you really believe that? If every time you are tempted to look at pornography, you will instead pick up your Bible, I promise you, you won't use porn. If when you're tempted to look at pornography, instead you begin praying, Jesus will be there with you. But the minute you're focused on pornography, even if it's the well-intended, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to, you're going to end up doing it because you don't have the strength to beat this. I was speaking with a, with a, a man today and, and I just told him the thing that we've got to remember about ourselves is that apart from Christ, any distance between us and Jesus in our day-to-day walk with the Lord, we're going to sin. You know, I've been a pastor for 26 years. I've been a Christian for 30 years. The truth is that if I get any distance between me and Jesus, I'm going to do all the horrible, terrible things that I did before I was saved because my flesh isn't any better. And the only way to fight flesh is with the power of the Spirit. And the power of the Spirit requires that we make a decision, a one-time-forever decision. Lord, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'd rather be with you than satisfy myself in this way. I think we also have to look at the the reality of porn. I mean, you write this question to this program, and I know how you feel the moment you're done using pornography. You feel shamed, embarrassed, humiliated. You feel separated from God. The devil comes and he pounds you. You call yourself a Christian. You've got to decide that you're done with it. This isn't an addiction. You know, people that drink, they are physically addicted. People that do drugs, they get physically addicted to some of those drugs. But once the physical addiction leaves the body, then it becomes a mind game. I would also add a heart game. So Anonymous... God has given you all the help you need. Your victory has been assured if you really have the faith to believe it and if you replace the temptation to look at things you know you shouldn't look at with things that God would say, let's do this. I promise you, every time you open your Bible, every time you begin to pray when you're tempted to do this, Pretty soon the devil's going to leave you alone. But I want you to understand you are in a fight and fighting is exhausting. So let the power of God do the resisting instead of you trying to do the resisting. One more question, I think, before this half of the program is over. We'd love your live calls and questions. Jared says, Paul talks about circumcision saying it doesn't matter but he required Timothy to be circumcised. Is that hypocrisy? Uh, no, it's not hypocrisy at all. And I think, Jared, one of the basic hermeneutics is knowing what we know about the Apostle Paul, we have to begin with the assumption that he's not being a hypocrite. So your question is really, why did he um, require Timothy to be circumcised? And by the way, he didn't require Titus to be circumcised. Well, Timothy, you'll remember, was Jewish. His mother was a Jew. His grandmother was a Jew. 
We also know that Timothy was Paul's protege in the faith, his son in the faith. And Timothy was called by God to take over for Paul when Paul went to heaven. And so he was being prepared. And here's what Paul is saying. Timothy, my missionary, my my mission is to the Gentiles. But I've always had a heart for my people, the Jews. And when we go into town, we start in the synagogue first. And if you're going to be a minister alongside me, if you're going to give yourself the opportunity to be heard, then you've got to be circumcised. Otherwise, Jews won't hear you. They won't listen to you. So what he was really doing, Jared, was giving Timothy the opportunity to expand his ministry rather than diminish his ministry. And Timothy, of course, would have done so willingly. He would have done it simply because he just wanted to be where Paul was doing the work. He knew he was being groomed for something far greater. And he simply didn't want to miss out on anything that God had for him. So, Jared, I would hope that we would take that kind of uh, approach as well. I don't want to miss anything God has for me. On a side note, I've had a lot of people getting pretty heavily tattooed in, in years past. I just tell them, as you keep increasing tattoos, you're diminishing the numbers of people who will listen to you and will take you seriously. So what do you want? Do you want a tattoo or do you want to be used by God? Drinking, smoking, all the same things. Hey, we've only got 30 minutes left in the week. The phones have been quiet. They sometimes are on Fridays, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Friday program. 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Xavier. He says, Pastor, are you familiar with the plagiarizing scandals going on in the SBC? May have your thoughts on pastors plagiarizing. Uh, Xavier, I'm, I'm, I'm only vaguely aware. Uh, you know, if I put on YouTube or something, I'll see that there's boxes that come up and, and they'll they'll have people that are, are comparing sermons and and uh, uh, so, so I'm vaguely aware. I know that Ed Litton, I think his name is, he's a new uh, SBC president, um, and 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 I guess he's got lots of messages that are virtually word for word with with other people, uh, popular pastors, um, and obviously my thoughts that's that's so wrong, you know that's so wrong. Um, if if you don't have time to study the Bible, if you don't have time to prepare your studies, then you ought not to be a pastor. It's just that simple. Um, it's hard to explain everything that we do as pastors. Um, it's out there, it's open, and people use our stuff. It's okay. John MacArthur tells a funny story about a, um, a lady who called from Ohio one time, and she said to him, uh, you know, I've, I've supported your ministry, contributed to it, and always thought you were a great Bible teacher, but I've discovered that you've been stealing my pastor's sermons for years. And, of course, we know that it was his pastor stealing John MacArthur's stuff. But the idea is, as pastors, you got to own your own stuff. You know, there's nothing new. Um, anything that I've said that somebody likes, they have my permission to use it. But but when you're just plagiarizing a sermon, you're not giving the people fresh manna. And I think it's really important. You know, Xavier, when when I prepare a study, now I've got my own commentary written um, uh, on, on pretty much the whole Bible now. And um, so, so I don't have to do the, all the research work anymore. It's already been done. So I look at my old studies and I, I, I use the notes, um, but the application is different. And so when, when I'm preparing a Bible study, I want to say, okay, Lord, I know what it says and I know what it means. 
But what I need you to do is provide me with what you want our people to hear today. You know, a message that I did 10 years ago. That might be a great message that I did, if I say so myself, and speaking tongue-in-cheek. Um, but, but, but the application is different. Things are different. People are different. And so I, I think it's really important to give what I call fresh manna to the people every single day. Um, I have used ideas, plenty of them, from people, whether it's reading commentaries or, or uh, quoting other pastors. Uh, I think we ought to give accreditation to the people that we're, we're quoting, um, you know, to make somebody think that this is an original idea, your original idea, when it really isn't. I think that's lying. And so I think um, we who are pastors, especially in this day and age of, of everything being out there and available, uh, I think we need to be really, really careful. Um, and let me give you one other thought I have on, on, on plagiarizing. Um, I have to be really careful about listening to people. Um, I'm not seeing this in any arrogance at all, but my problem with listening to other people is that I have a tendency to 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 want to copy their style, and I don't have a style, and so it just it doesn't fit for me. So I think I think uh, uh, if if somebody's caught plagiarizing like's going on currently in the SBC, then I, I think those people ought to step down. I had a good friend of mine call me one time, and he had a church that was rebelling against him. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, I just had a really tough week, and I was really busy, and I, I and he quoted another pastor, um, I, I sort of preached his notes. And I said, well, we all look at commentaries. He says, no, no, I did it word for word. And I told him, I said, you know, if you did that and pass it off as your own, then you probably need to step away for a time. And his church didn't give him any choice. They eventually fired him. But but I think it's it's a pretty serious thing. So, Savior, thank you very, very much. Here is a question from, let me see here. Oh, a phone call. Hold on. Cindy from San Antonio. Hi, Cindy. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I actually I have a couple things. The thing has nothing to do with, with the Bible. Um, the first thing is, are you and Mama Paula getting to watch uh, any of the Ryder Cup and see that golf course that they're playing on? Cindy, I, I've not. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm DVRing it. I've got it on, on tape. Uh, so I'll get to watch a little bit. I'll kind of speed through it because I can't stay up so late. But but I'm doing that. I have seen golf tournaments on that golf course before, and it's a, an, an exceptionally difficult golf course and a very unusual golf course. Now, for the fans or for the, the, the studio audience, um, um, I'm, I'm an old golfer. I can't golf anymore because of my eyes. But we love golf. Paul and I love golf. So, yeah, we pretty much watch golf all the time. So I'll go home tonight and sort of speed through and see how we're doing. Or Anything else? accurate words at that golf course. <laughs> the, um, the other thing I had was an actual question about Daniel. It's about Daniel's vision that he had. Did he have that before or after Nebuchadnezzar's dream? And Because I was thinking that if he had it before Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it would really make him stand, you know, the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And if not, then I was just curious. I think you probably told us that on Wednesday night, but I think it got away from me. So yeah. I will just listen on the radio. And thank you for the studies. Bye. <laughs> thank you, Cindy. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 occurred before Daniel's dreams and or visions in chapter 7. Now, that's important because in chapters 4 and 5 in Daniel, we sort of lose the chronology. They happen later in Daniel's life. And then you get to chapter 7, and that vision happened before the events of chapters 5 and 6. So what we've got in those two chapters is we've got Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
the, the statue. He, you are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel told him. Um, and, and that was sort of what kingdoms and powerful people look like from Earth's perspective. But when we get to chapter 7 and that dream comes from heaven, we see a completely different picture. Now, the story is the same. It's the history of the world from from Babylon forward. Uh, and, and in fact, Cindy, um, it, it demonstrates the, that God views things on earth far different than man does. So instead of a statue of gold with all of these precious stones and the great value, God shows him nothing but beasts. They're, they're just beasts. And uh, what is precious to man doesn't matter at all to God. So in Daniel chapter 7, and I, um, we didn't finish chapter 7. We only got halfway through chapter 7. We're going to finish it this coming Wednesday. Uh, it's just God's perspective on the kingdoms of this world. And it's just God saying, look, I, I move kings in. I move them out. And while they may think of themselves as something being very important and the power being very valuable, he said, they're just puppets, really, for me. I'm just using them uh, sovereignly to accomplish my purposes. So, um, Cindy, from this point forward in the book of Daniel, it gets very technical and, and, and to me, very interesting. I'm a kind of a history nut, um, but, but I also like the specificity of the prophecy. So if you like history and you and you you stand in awe as I do of God telling the future to to minute detail, um, demonstrating that this really is the word of God and only God knows these things. If you if you're fascinated by that, if it, if it's encouraging to know that God is in that kind of control, then I think you'll find the rest of the studies really interesting as well. Uh, but but believe me, the, the, chapter 7 is just the beginning because these dreams and visions uh, get so specific. When we get to chapter 9, um, we go all the way into the end of time, um, beyond the time that we live in, still yet future for us. So, Cindy, I'm having a good time in Daniel. I hope everybody else is having a good time listening to it as well. Thank you for the question. Martin says, I know we go directly to Jesus when we die, but what about unbelievers? Do they go directly to hell? Um, Martin, the final resting place, or it's not, it's not resting, but the final place of torment um, has not yet been uh, created. The, the lake of fire, uh, which will, will be a result of the great white throne judgment, doesn't yet exist. So right now, unbelievers go to a place in the abyss, in the center of the earth. Um, you can read about it in Luke chapter 16, and it's a place of torment. Prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, the believing Jews, those like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, um, uh, David and Moses and the others, uh, they would be in, in, the, in the, the place called paradise, uh, in that same abyss, uh, but um, the, the, well, Jesus emptied that compartment. Uh, the, the place of torment is still occupied. So when an unbeliever dies, that's where they go. Their body stops working, but the real them, the spirit in them, goes into this place of torment, and it happens instantly. Uh, they will only be released to uh, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and God, uh, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, um, and and they will be judged and sentenced eventually after the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. They will be sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire. Thanks, Martin. Robert says, why aren't there any prophetic voices today warning us like the Old, Old Testament prophets warned Israel? Um, Robert, uh, there are plenty of prophetic voices. What there are not today are prophets. Hebrews 1.1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many ways and at various times through the prophets. But in these last days, in other words, there's a transition, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in son. In other words, Jesus is, is, is everything that God wants to say. So there are 
voices out there, warning of, of judgment to come. That's a, a prophetic voice, but it's just not coming from a prophet like the Old Testament prophets uh, were used in Israel. So, uh, I, I, you know, tonight we're going to heaven in our Bible study in Revelation chapter 4, and I am certain that, that my voice will be a prophetic voice, not the voice of a prophet. So please understand that the, the difference. But uh, my voice will be prophetic. Uh, when people are warning that judgment is coming, that Jesus is going to return soon, that's a prophetic voice. Turn from your sin. Uh, ask Jesus into your heart. That's a prophetic voice. Um, warning our nation. You know, a nation that's rebelled against God is a nation that is going to be judged by the, the wrath of God. That's a prophetic voice. So I wouldn't agree, um, Robert, that there are are that there are not any prophetic voices any longer. Um, I think that those warnings are all out there. One other comment on this. Um, Robert, you know, we have a tendency to look at, we read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, um, Daniel, and the others, and we're amazed by them. And we recognize that they're prophets, but in their days, they were hated. And they were killed. Jesus told a parable about uh, a homeowner who sent uh, his servants uh, to, to the, you know, his the, the, the people that he left in charge of his place weren't doing their job, and he sent people to them, his servants to them, to, to warn them, and and they killed the servants. Well, the servants um, represent the Old Testament prophets. Remember, Jesus was speaking to Jews, and in this particular case, we think of Isaiah as this hero at a more than 50-year ministry. And yet he was eventually stuffed into a hollowed-out log and sawed in half. Prophet after prophet was murdered because they stood for righteousness. Their lives were difficult. They weren't easy at all. Now, people knew who they were, but they just didn't care because they wanted to sin. And I think the people that we see proclaiming themselves prophets today, um, well, let's just say I wouldn't want to be them on the Day of Judgment. So, Robert, I hope that makes sense to you. Yoli says, Why will Christians face judgment if our sins have been forgiven? Well, Yoli, our sins have indeed been forgiven. So, when we face judgment, it won't be for salvation. That issue has been settled once and for all. When you're born again, you're just as if you'd never sinned the, 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 the doctrine of justification. And we're going to heaven. Uh, but we will go to the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Romans uh, chapter 12, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, where we will be judged. Our works will be judged. And the reason our works are going to be judged, Jolie, is to find out what sort of work they were in terms of what's the quality. Uh, in First Corinthians 3, we're, to, we're told about wood, hay, and stubble works or precious metals work. You know, when tested by fire, precious metals endure. Wood, hay, and stubble, of course, just burns up. Um, the good works that we do, those that we do with the right heart, those that we do in the power of the Holy Spirit, those that we do for the benefit of others... Those are the works that we're going to receive crowns of glory for, crowns of righteousness. The other works, the wood, hay, and stubble works, there's going to be no rewards for those. Um, we gave money because we had to. We worshipped God because we had to. We were in church. Or we, we served not to advance the cause of God, but we served with the wrong motive, want people to see us serving um, we prayed for somebody because we wanted our life to be better. Those are all the kind of works that are going to be judged and they're going to be burned up and there's not going to be any rewards for those at all. So, Yoli, in that light, we all ought to examine ourselves daily, repent of those things that we did with the wrong motive or the things that we did that were not God's will but our will because there's not going to be any credit for that. But we will be judged and how faithful or faithless we are here on earth is going to determine in some mysterious way uh, our capacity to be blessed in heaven. Heaven's going to be great for everybody, but it's going to be better for some 
than for others. In the same way, hell will be worse for some than for others. So, Yoli, I hope that makes sense to you. we got a few minutes left. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Patricia says, Pastor on my friend says Peter was the first pope and head of the early church. Well, Patricia, you can tell your friend that Peter wasn't even alive when the universal Catholic church became the official church of the world. That was in the 4th century, um, 313, uh, when uh, Catholicism was declared, Christianity was declared the official world religion. Uh, Peter was long, long gone by then. So um, that's just Catholic tradition. It is in um, opposition to the facts, the timeline. Um, It's just not true. So, Patricia, uh, tell your friend to read her history, her church history. The Roman Catholic Church didn't even appear in history until 313 A.D. So I hope that makes sense to you. Lilia says, I know we received the Holy Spirit at conversion, but why did some receive him after they were saved, like in Acts 19? Um, Lilia, I think what you have is a misreading of Acts chapter 19. This is uh, from Ephesus. There were some people who came uh, who were disciples. It says right there that they were disciples, but they weren't disciples of Jesus. They hadn't even heard that Jesus came. There's another example with with uh, Apollos, the fiery preacher, when he came into Corinth and was preaching. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila saw him and said, well, there's something missing in his message. And so they took him aside and explained the way of Christ more adequately or more completely to him. Uh, They were disciples, but they were disciples of John the Baptist. Jesus, you remember, said, if you have not the Holy Spirit, you have none of me. So upon conversion, we get the Spirit of God. But those disciples in Ephesus were not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John. Now, there's a great, great principle there for us. The Bible says that if we seek him, he will be found by us. That's important. He's a rewarder of those who earnestly and diligently seek. So these were men who were seeking him, and they just happened to run into the Apostle Paul. I'd say that's a pretty good coincidence, don't you? It was God who was bringing them to place to answer their hearts. Their hearts were right. They heard the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had many, many disciples, and some of those men in other places wouldn't have had the opportunity to be exposed to Jesus. So in Acts chapter 19, this isn't the second experience of the Holy Spirit. This is just a conversion experience. And to signify that they met Jesus, then the Spirit fell and they spoke in tongues. Uh, but it's not a second or or a, a baptismal experience of the Holy Spirit. They just weren't believers at all until God answered the desire of their heart and put the greatest evangelist that's ever lived in front of them. So read carefully. They were disciples, but remember, disciples just a follower of somebody. And, and in Israel... In that part of the world, uh, even in Ephesus, Asia Minor, um, people always had followers. There were, there were I'm a disciple of this rabbi, or I'm a disciple of that rabbi. Um, but, but when they met the rabbi, Jesus, as these men did, uh, that's when they got saved. Thank you, Lilia. Uh, Vicky wants to know, what do I think about pastors who are trying to tell people who and what to vote for in church? Um, Vicky, I, I can't imagine. Um, I just can't imagine doing that. I, I, I know it happens. I know churches put out voter guides. Um, some churches get really active in politics. I think the pastors who are doing that are um, misrepresenting the Lord. Not only are they misrepresenting the Lord, I think they're leaving their people exposed to spiritual danger because they're not equipping them for the work of ministry. They're not equipping them to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Um, A a pastor who tells somebody uh, how to vote um, should not be a pastor. It's, It's just that simple. That's not our business. Our job, as it relates to politics, is to help you form a Christian worldview. 
Now, we don't tell you what that is, but we, we do that by teaching you the Word of God. And then we let the Holy Spirit that lives in you put all the information together and and we trust Him to lead and guide you to make the right decisions when you get to the ballot box. But But the pastor who is telling people how to vote is isolating half of the people who might be in his church. He's isolating them basically saying you're not really believers, so I think it's a horrible, horrible thing. Vicki, I hope that is clear enough. Final question today. Megan wants to know, can we command God to heal us? Megan, we can't command God to do anything at all. And I mean nothing at all. I think sometimes we read the the book of Hebrews, we can approach the throne of God with boldness. Um, that's a bad translation. It's more with confidence. Uh, to approach the throne of God, we, we need to be meek and humble and and grateful that we have access. But uh, we can't command God to do anything. Healing is not provided for in the atonement. It's certainly not promised. It does not mean that God doesn't heal today sometimes. But the idea that everybody should get healed, all we have to do is have enough faith and we can just sort of command God to do the healing is as biblically immature as we can possibly get. So what we do is we go to the elders of the church and ask them to lay hands on us. And then if it's God's will, then we will get healed. But to command God to do anything is to misunderstand who's really in charge, Megan. And I want to apologize to you for whoever the pastor is that's been telling you this nonsense, this prosperity, name it and claim it, junk is just painfully, painfully obvious in our culture. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Get to church this week. Find somebody to pray for. Put your arms around somebody and let them know how much God loves them. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.